Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the federal government introduces a bill to relax sentences for drug possession aimed at reducing incarceration rates for black and indigenous offenders. The details from the Minister of Social Development. The Senate amends the assisted dying bill to allow for even more access and setting up a possible standoff with the House of Commons over the changes as a court-imposed deadline looms. MPs will debate next steps. And our panel of political commentators will be here to talk about vaccine rollout, platform-like announcements and possible election timing. And we'll begin tonight with a new federal bill tabled in the House today, which would repeal mandatory minimum sentences for certain drug offenses. The government says those penalties disproportionately hurt Indigenous and black offenders and those who are struggling with addictions. And these changes will fight systemic racism in the criminal justice system, according to the government. Here are some numbers to inform our conversation tonight. Indigenous people make up around 5% of Canada's total population, and yet... They represent roughly 30% of the federal prison population. That number is even higher in many provincial jails. And black people represent just 3.5% of Canada's population, yet they represent roughly 10% of Canada's federal prison population. These proposed changes include eliminating mandatory minimum sentences for drug offences, forcing police and prosecutors to consider sending offenders who face a charge of simple possession to treatment programs instead of jail, or to consider conditional sentences if the offender doesn't pose a threat to public safety. The proposed changes indicate a major shift away from the mandatory minimum sentences introduced by the previous Conservative government for drug crimes from incarceration and toward addiction treatment. We are turning the page on a failed Conservative criminal justice policy. It was an approach that did not make our communities safer. It did not deter criminals. It did not make the justice system more effective or more fair. Its singular accomplishment has been to incarcerate too many Indigenous people, too many Black people, and too many marginalized Canadians. Ahmed Hussain is Canada's Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. He was part of a team of ministers announcing these proposed changes today. Uh, Minister, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. What is the driving motivation for these changes your government is proposing today, uh, treating these drug offences as uh, addiction issues and not criminal issues? Uh, Because we follow the evidence. We've seen that this uh, one-size-fits-all approach uh, has failed. The conservative policies that uh, uh, overemphasized punishment to the detriment of rehabilitation and reintegration and treatment for people has, uh, has serious consequences, especially for black, indigenous, and racialized Canadians. So we're taking action to keep communities safe, to keep Canadians safe, because the conservative policies were not keeping our communities safe. They were just ensuring that our court systems were clogged up, that our jails were filled to the brim. We need to step back and realize that, yes, the, the, the you know, prison is the right place for for some serious offenders of serious, serious 
offenses. But for those who need treatment, uh, who are struggling with addictions and other and other challenges, they need treatment. They don't mm. need to be uh, dealt with by the harsh hand of the okay. uh, of the criminal justice system. Uh, to be clear here, you're repealing mandatory minimum penalties for certain drug offenses and also for some offenses involving the use of a firearm or possession in some cases of a firearm. Um, I, you've mentioned the objective here in large measure is to reduce the disproportionate harm being caused by mandatory minimum penalties to Indigenous people and black people. How, how will you measure that? How will you know these proposals are working? We know uh, that uh, right now the system that is in place is not working. We see a massive disproportionate impact, negative impact that mandatory minimum penalties have had especially on indigenous black and racialized Canadians. Uh, the, the, the proportion of those populations in the general population versus the prison population is massively, massively disproportionate. So we have to address that. And Canadians have told us uh, that uh, this is a, a social justice issue uh, that we have to address. We have to address issues around systemic discrimination and marginalization within okay. Canada's uh, justice system. Let me talk about the timing here. You, you and your colleagues today at the, at the news conference slammed uh, the mandatory minimums uh, brought in by the Conservatives, and yet it's taken six years and a pile of court challenges and uh, decisions from courts to uh, see your government propose this bill to eliminate these mandatory minimums. So I guess I'm wondering, it's a social justice issue. What's taken so long to move on it? We have been, of course, uh, making sure that we get this right. We've been consulting with the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers and many, many other stakeholders. We've heard from Canadians that it is time that we address these issues. You saw uh, thousands and thousands of Canadians emerge uh, into the streets last summer to demand that we uh, collectively as a country address uh, more robustly the issues around systemic discrimination of black, indigenous, and people of color in this country. And one of the systems that uh, clearly demonstrates the need for reform is our criminal justice system, which, again, disproportionately impacts uh, on those populations. As a former yeah. criminal defense lawyer, I have seen firsthand those impacts on those populations. And so we have to do better, and we are taking action uh, to put in place measures to do better as a country. Let's talk about the drug offenses piece and the mandatory minimums being repealed there. If this is a move to treat drug offenses as an addiction uh, yes. and, and a health matter um, and not a criminal matter, we know the country's facing an opioid abuse epidemic as we speak here. And I guess uh, I'm wondering, why doesn't your government move further than this? De de sorry, decriminalize drug use period, instead of, uh, you know, uh, changing the penalty regime, uh, why not wipe it out as a criminal offense altogether? I think it's it's important to recognize that uh, we are the government that uh, moved ahead with cannabis uh, legalization to make sure that uh, we regularize and, and, and legalize uh, cannabis. We, full, we fulfill that campaign commitment. When it comes to issues around drug addictions and, uh, and, and other challenges that, uh, that people face who interact with the criminal justice system, we know that we have to address all the social determinants that lead to, uh, to, uh, to interactions with the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system uh, is there for particular crimes and particular uh, hardened uh, offenders. But for those who need treatment, uh, we need to provide them those opportunities. The issue around uh, you know, uh, 
what how, the approach around drug policy is is a debate that we can have but but the addressing of uh, drug addictions and and, and minor uh, drug offenses through the heavy hand of the criminal justice system has not worked and we right, are taking right, but the if, right but if, if the if the government's saying it's a it's a health addiction issue and it's an addiction issue and it's a health issue not a public safety or criminal issue uh wouldn't it seem to follow then you de you know you decriminalize uh, all possess you know simple possession of illicit drugs uh and it seems that's where this would be headed no well, you you refer to the opioid crisis. We know that these uh, the, these these drugs, including fentanyl and others, have significant uh, negative health impacts on people. So, of course, we are concerned about the entry into Canada and 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 the impacts that they have not only on individuals but on families, on communities, uh, and so that is something that our government has been very much in, engaged uh, in. However, today's announcement was particularly around issues uh, related to people who uh, face uh, drug charges as a result of, of, of having addictions and having other challenges, and, and they need treatment. And this is precisely why today's announcements uh, will make a big difference in, in the people uh, who are facing these challenges, but also save a lot of time and money. Uh, from our criminal justice system to make it more fairer, yeah. to make it more uh, efficient. Okay, one of the signature pieces of this bill is, is actually requires police and prosecutors to consider diversion yeah. programs to treatment yeah. uh, uh, for treatment rather than laying charges for simple possession of drugs. But it, but it doesn't require them to choose those options just to consider the options. And I guess I'm wondering why not just remove the charge of simple possession from the law altogether and make the only option for police or prosecutors diversion and treatment. We trust police officers, well-trained police officers and, and Crown prosecutors to make those decisions based on the circumstances of each and every case and offender. We, this will not just be a suggestion, in fact, it will be a requirement for them to, to, to consider these, these diversion options and it will be part of their training, it will be part of their directions moving forward. Uh, and we will implement this. However, are you expecting uh, them to are you expecting them to opt for those options more often than not? Absolutely. When it is appropriate, they will do that because that's part of their training. That is, these are professionals who are trained uh, to to carry out their their work in a certain manner. Okay. And we tr but we also trust them to make the call based on the circumstances uh, surrounding each offender and each uh, each offense. Because in some cases, diversion will not. Uh, will not be an option based on the circumstances of the offender and, and, and the charge. So right. we trust these professionals to do the right thing. What we are saying is they have to consider this more often okay. than not, and uh, it will be part of their training and their direction. We'll, we'll have to leave it there for tonight, Minister Hassan. Thanks so much for your time, sir. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's follow up with three members of Parliament now. I'm joined by Arif Farani, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice. Michael Cooper is the Deputy Justice Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Randall Garrison is the Justice Critic for the NDPs. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to get to the latest developments on the assisted dying legislation that's coming back before the House uh, from the Senate. But first, let's deal with the justice reforms proposed by the government today. And we've heard from the Minister. Uh, so, Mr. Cooper, let me begin with you. Various federal ministers today launching this sweeping condemnation of mandatory minimums introduced by the previous Conservative government, uh, including the constitutional challenges clogging up the courts and uh, disproportionate harm caused to Indigenous and Black offenders. What's your response to that criticism? My response to the government's bill is that it puts criminals first 
this bill uh, removes a number of mandatory minimums for some very serious offenses, including serious firearms uh, offenses, including uh, weapons trafficking, uh, coming into possession of a firearm uh, through the commission of an offense, using a, a firearm in the commission of an offense. Uh, well, so well the, point, rather, the, the point they're making is that, look, uh, we'll, we'll remove the men, we'll leave those decisions about what kind of penalty to impose uh, to the judges as opposed to the, to the mandatory uh, minimums uh, legislated. So do you believe that those mandatory minimums, as the government is insisting, uh, do you believe that Indigenous and Black Canadians have been disproportionately harmed by those mandatory minimum measures? Well, I, I believe that those mandatory jail times for those serious offenses need to remain in place. And when we're talking about uh, changes to, with respect to uh, drug-related offenses, I would agree that we need to ensure that Canada's drug laws are targeted towards those who take advantage of the vulnerable, those who suffer from addictions, uh, those offenders who are involved in things like trafficking. And, right, but, but, do you, but do you accept that argument? Drugs. Do you accept this the argument bill, from the government? Bill. Do you accept the argument from the government that these have disproportionately harmed Indigenous uh, Canadians and Black Canadians? As I say, uh, I take issue with removal of certain mandatory jail times for some serious offenses. That's the issue that I have. With All right, government. Mr. Garrison, what's the NDP's reaction to the measures being proposed by the federal government today? Well, we've been long calling for taking action on uh, drug possession of uh, minor amounts for personal uh, use because we believe that addiction is a health problem and not a criminal justice problem. So while there's some good things in this bill, I remain disappointed that the government hasn't taken the step we've been calling for, and that is to completely decriminalize the personal possession of small amounts of drugs for your uh, personal use. Uh, as well, there's no mention of expungement here. And one of the things that has contributed to the excessive harm to black and indigenous communities in particular uh, is the fact that uh, criminal records result from uh, these minor drug possession charges that often restrict things like employment uh, ability. So yes, some good steps in the right direction here, but uh, as usual from this liberal government, more rhetoric than actual progress. Let me pick up on that. Uh, to, to Mr. Garrison's point, Mr. Varani, uh, some people will look at these proposals and say they uh, look like a half measure. If, if drug use is an addiction and health issue, not a public safety issue, uh, why isn't your government moving to decriminalize drug possession for personal use altogether? Well, well, let me take it seriatim, Peter. I think it's illuminating that uh, you have, Mr. Cooper, unable to actually articulate in Black History Month the desperately disproportionate impact of mandatory minimums on Black Canadians in particular, let alone Indigenous people. In terms of statistics, they are startling. The, the number of Indigenous offenders admitted with an offence punishable by an MMP doubled between 2007 and 2016. Doubled. And that's already reflected in the fact that 30% of federal inmates are Indigenous, whereas they represent 5% mm. of the population. So that's the fact on the overrepresentation and the systemic racism that the system bequeathed to us by Stephen Harper has created. With respect to the point you just asked me in response to Mr. Garrison, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting commentary. We're looking forward to this being debated in the House and in, in the committee. What we would say with respect to, to a drug and simple drug possession is that, yes, court time shouldn't be used 
and clogging up precious judicial resources with simple possession. That's why we're advocating for a diversion program that would be implemented mm -hmm. that will help alleviate the record that's being created in the first instance, which Mr. Garrison is concerned about, as am I. The, I mean, the examples given today, Mr. Cooper, about some of these cases in, involve, uh, you know, uh, in some cases, the, the, the government's pointing to cases involving single mothers coming to, to court because of uh, simple drug possession issues and so on. Um, are, are, you, are you suggesting that there's no room for easing any of these mandatory minimums in any of these cases, even some of, uh, you know, personal possession of drug use? That's not what I'm saying okay, what are at you all. Saying? Uh, I believe that when it comes to certain simple possession uh, offenses, that that uh, could be looked at uh, in terms of removing certain uh, mandatory jail times. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have to ensure uh, that our laws are targeted against those who prey on the vulnerable, who prey on people who suffer from addictions. And quite frankly, in this bill, there's very little comfort for those uh, Canadians because, again, uh, it removes mandatory jail time for people who are involved in uh, trafficking of drugs, in growing harmful drugs. Uh, so that and, is and puts issue. that and power, then, I guess, puts that so power it's, back. It's, puts it's that power back with talk, and, and it's important that we acknowledge the impact uh, that the criminal just criminal laws have had to certain communities, including uh, Black Canadians, uh, Indigenous Canadians. I'm not. Uh, denying that at all. I think that is a serious issue, but we have to look at what is in the bill, and what is in the bill is the removal of mandatory okay. jail time for not only things like simple possession, but for some very serious offenses. And that's a whole other issue. Mr. Mr. Garrison, I want to move us along, if I can, now to the assisted dying file. Uh, the Senate sent back to the House now the government's assisted dying legislation, which has already been passed by the House. And Senate's inserted five amendments that go much further than the House bill, including allowing people who worry they will lose their mental capacity to make advanced requests for assisted death, and another imposing an 18-month sunset clause on the bill's ban on assisted death for people whose underlying chronic condition is a mental illness. How open is your party to those changes? Well, first of all, we're not very open to amendments coming from an unelected and unaccountable body like the Senate, no matter what talking, what uh, uh, topic we're on. And so uh, when I look at what the Senate did, um, their traditional role was to review what the House did, to look for errors and omissions, and to provide some stronger regional representation. That's not what this is about at all. They've completely redone the work that had already been done in the House of Commons. And so uh, we think that the Bill C-7 should proceed as it was originally okay, uh, so approved in the House, but we don't get to decide that. The, the government will present us with some kind of motion, mm -hmm. either accepting or rejecting amendments, and uh, until we see what the Liberals are going to put in front of us, we can't say exactly what we'll do. All right, Mr. Verani, the, the, the Senate makes the case that uh, it's standing up for fundamental constitutional rights, and its role is to protect those where they think MPs may have failed to do so. Is your government willing to accept the Senate amendments, uh, all of them, or even some of them, or Flat out, no. So the uh, the short answer is that's under active consideration. If I could just make a very brief response to Mr. Cooper with respect to the mandatory minimums. The issue of trafficking is not on the table in terms of removing mandatory minimums. We are going after drug traffickers and firearms traffickers. We are not seeking to criminalize people who are involved in simple possession or a simple firearms offense. Okay, so I need a quick answer. I need a quick answer from respect, you then respect, on, on whether you're going to accept the Senate amendments. 
Yes, with respect to MAID, Peter, and I don't mean to uh, not address your question. With respect to MAID, we're looking carefully at all of those matters. Some of them are, are meant to be the subject of the review that is a five-year mandatory review. They require very careful consideration, particularly the mental illness point. We're looking forward to debate and most importantly, looking forward to right. meeting the court Mr. Coop, Mr. Cooper, there's a court-imposed deadline here of next Friday uh, to get this bill passed uh, in some form. What do you think needs to happen next year? Are, are Conservatives... Uh, prepared to entertain some of the Senate amendments, or what's your position? I would hope that the government reject the Senate uh, amendments. Uh, quite frankly, the current bill, before it went to the Senate, uh, went well beyond the scope of the Truchon decision in terms of removing critical safeguards. And I think that uh, we saw as a result, very significant opposition from, uh, for example, the disabilities rights community, who were very concerned that vulnerable persons could be put at risk. I believe that uh, before expanding the regime any further, what is required is a parliamentary review, a review that was supposed to happen okay. last spring uh, that never happened. Uh, and instead, what we have is a very flawed piece of legislation right, uh, that based upon the testimony before the Justice Committee and the testimony okay, of witnesses before the stop you Constitutional there. Affairs Committee leaves almost Gotta stop no you there, Mr. Cooper. So we, we think there might be some, uh, some debate on this coming up in the days ahead in the House. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you, uh, all of you, when that happens. But thanks for your time tonight, gentlemen. Good to speak with you all. Thanks. Thank Peter. you. Thank you. All right, let's bring in our panel of political commentators now. This week, joined by Susan Smith, a liberal commentator. Kate Harrison's a conservative commentator. And Kiyavash Najafi is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Susan, let's uh, start with the ongoing pandemic response. Uh, some good news today about accelerated deliveries of vaccines. The narrative mm -hmm. from the government that we're about to turn the corner with massive shipments between now and the end of June, promising 14.5 million Canadians now will be fully immunized by the end of June. That number could be even higher if other vaccines are approved in the meantime. How important are the next, uh, let's say, two months for the prime minister and his government's pandemic response? Well, I think they're critical. They're critical for Canadians. They're critical for the prime minister because the vaccines will come in as promised and actually even more quickly than promised. The big issue to me is, are the provinces ready to go to get those vaccines into people's arms? That's the one thing we do know is that the, the, government, the federal government is responsible for procuring and distributing the vaccines to the provinces. The provinces need to be ready to get those jabs into arms. It's good news for Trudeau and the government. It actually is what they have been saying all along, just better. Uh, we, they had always said 3 million people vaccinated by the end of March, 11 million by the end of June. We're up to 14.5 million if things um, continue to roll in as expected, and that's great for Canadians right, Kate, what and do you think? Canada and the economy. Kate, what's your view? Yeah, there is a window here for the Liberals to turn this around from a public opinion perspective. It is a short window. And I would say it's not necessarily four to six weeks. I think we're talking about three to four uh, in terms of whether or not the Liberals are able to deliver short term on the vaccines that have been promised. Uh, if they meet the end of March deadline, I think Canadians perhaps will be willing to uh, forgive the government's delays so far. If there are more delays, whether or not they're in the government's control or not, people are getting frustrated and they're losing their patience. So I think we're really talking about a final decision point here for voters' perspectives right. by the end of March uh, and no later than that. I'm going to come to that. But uh, Kiyavash, let me get your, your thoughts first on what you're watching now about vaccine rollout over the next uh, several weeks. Uh, well, I mean, let's hope that 
uh, they actually live up to to the promise and that these vaccines arrive. Canadians are watching the rest of the world uh, vaccinate at a faster pace. The jabs are getting into people's arms and and um, light at the end of the tunnel is appearing. Uh, but at the same time, we're also dealing with the possibility of a third wave. And I think if these uh, numbers are not realized and I agree with Susan. Also, like the the provinces, if they're not able to deliver the, the vaccines, I think the patience of uh, ordinary Canadians with this government and all the other levels of government is going to run big. Then. Look what we've seen today: uh, justice reforms from the government, Susan, gun control legislation earlier this week, and all of it introduced in the middle of a pandemic. Two big ticket items, along with an improving vaccine rollout. It would appear a budget next month with massive spending of a hundred billion dollars more. Does it feel like a snap election platform in the making here? It's been busy in Ottawa, hasn't it, Peter? Uh, I think the government is uh, looking to fulfill its mandate commitments. Uh, it made commitments to Canadians in the last election saying it would do justice reform and gun control reform and a number of other things. Infrastructure spending, there was a transportation announcement as well. So this is what you're seeing. They obviously have been consumed by the pandemic and had to deal with that. That was critical. But now they're turning their attention both to pandemic and to economic recovery and to fulfilling what they said. So Ideally, they'd go to the polls if they have as many boxes ticked off as possible. Uh, it looks like they are trying to meet those right. commitments. It's still up in the air when they go to the polls. Uh, Kate, it's been interesting. I think he's been asked repeatedly, the prime minister, whether he would commit not to trigger an election, a snap election on his own by you know, going to see the governor general. Uh, what do you, uh, well, we don't have one right now anyway, but what, what do you, <laughs> w- what's your thought, thought about timing here? Does it look like they're laying the groundwork here to go if they can, if the vaccine stuff works? If they're not laying the groundwork, uh, they're going about uh, governing in a very peculiar way right now. Uh, You don't drop a $15 billion transit announcement and a $15 billion climate announcement in December um, and a a bunch of justice reforms uh, and other policies uh, in the middle of a pandemic, unless you're maybe gearing up for something bigger. Uh, And I think if the story were just about vaccines right now, uh, you know, the, the government would be keen to try and move attention away from that because it has been a rough couple of months for them on that file in particular. To me, they're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel on vaccines, perhaps. They're feeling emboldened. They feel like they can go uh, tick off the, the mandate box commitments. I very much am of the view that a spring election or perhaps an early summer election is, is still on the table as far as the government's concerned. All right. What do you think, Kivash? We had this exact conversation two weeks ago, and you know I, what? I bet we're gonna, I bet we're going to have it again too. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, and at that time, everybody on this panel thought that spring election was off the table because of the way that the vaccine numbers were. Um, we're going to see how it happens. Honestly, you know, a third wave is coming. There is absolutely zero reason to go to an election. This parliament is functioning. There, it's not at the end of its line. Um, and, you know, the, uh, it, nothing other than a desire to have a majority government for the for uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, is really triggering uh, the thought of an election. I think it's much better for everybody to just cool their engines and focus on uh, getting Canadians through the pandemic, dealing with a potential third wave uh, and also getting the, the jab into people's arms so that we can put this pandemic behind us, recover from it and then. Okay. Uh, Susan, the House debated a conservative motion today calling on the Prime Minister to join allies such as the United States and declare China's crackdown on the Muslim Uyghur minority in China a genocide, something the Prime Minister has so far refused to do. But some of his backbench MPs are on the record saying they believe it's a genocide. All the opposition parties support the motion and will vote for it, uh, it looks like, on Monday. What makes this such a difficult decision for the Prime Minister? 
complicated one, I think, because it involves a relationship with China. And it, it and it's it. I mean, if it was just a question of declaring it a genocide or not, if it met the criteria, it met the criteria. And, I, and you may see movement, I think, from the government there. The issue is we have two Michaels in jail in China, arbitrarily detained. And that, I think, weighs heavily on the government uh, when it comes to making decisions. It, 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 you know, if you're talking about the context of election, one of the things they'd like to see done before this is, is movement on these two gentlemen, if they could. So I think there's a, a, a bigger context at play. I think the government's in an awkward position when it comes to this. There's no question. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, Kate Harrison, how do you think the government's handling this? And this, you know, is it clear to you that this is all about the two Michaels and not wanting to uh, thumb the nose even more at China? Yeah, I, I don't think it's clear to me. I think that, you know, we're, we're losing room for nuance here. Um, it's been two years since the Michaels were detained. I think the current approach clearly is not working. Uh, when you've got the international community standing up and, and saying that this is a genocide, the Secretary of State for the U.S., as you, as you mentioned, they've come out and said clearly it's a genocide. I'm not sure uh, what the hang-up is. I think that uh, it, it, it's not fair. Yes, there might be complications with the two Michaels. I don't think that's an excuse not to call this out for what it is, um, which is atrocious behavior towards uh, the Uyghur community. So um, I think that rightly the government is feeling pressure on this file. Uh, just because a situation is complex does not mean that you have to uh, stand on the sidelines and not call this out for what it is, which is indeed a, a genocide. Okay, uh, Kivash, what what do you think the challenge is for the, for the Prime Minister here? And do you think there's a uh, a political cost. Uh, there's the two Michaels we've talked about. Is there a political cost in, in not acting on this? Uh, well, acting on it is exactly the, the, the right language. I mean, um, you know, I, it's one of those very difficult international uh, politics portfolios when you're dealing with China. You know, like, for instance, in the case of Darfur, we were all able to call uh, the behavior of government of Sudan uh, genocidal because of two reasons. One was that there was no cost associated with it and there wasn't anything we were going to do, even though we were declaring it was a genocide, but it's not like we sent the troops to stop it. Um, there is a, you know, responsibility to protect. I do think what's happening in China is a genocide. Uh, I also understand that it's very difficult for the government to figure out how to deal with it. Just calling it a genocide is not enough to deal with it. I think it's really important to work with our allies and figure out an actual path forward. Um, it is very interesting to me that the same people who were previously encouraging free trade, uh, you know, <laughs> no, no regulation in our trade with, with China are today the ones who are pushing for all sorts of restrictions. Uh, on China. So, you know, I, I think it's more of a politics rather than actually caring about the, right. the uh, situation of the Oregon people. That's our time for this evening. Uh, thank you all for joining me. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Take care, everyone. Thank Great. You. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.